You know, today is the second Sunday of Advent and the second Sunday in our series entitled Christmas Records. And we're talking about our favorite Christmas records. Now today in the modern service, they're singing The Grinch today. And Brandon uh, sang The Grinch, and I don't know if I've ever heard it sung any better. If he'd only had on a green costume, it'd have been fantastic. But it was super. But today, we're going to hear a song that was done by a young woman named Taylor Swift when she was really a teenager. And so I thought instead of me messing it up, I'd ask some of our teenagers to sing and play it. And we have a trio that's going to do just that. So y'all make your way to um, the chancel here. And the song is called Christmas Must Be Something More. And there's a message in this song that I want us to hear today. And I hope that this message will be accentuated in the sermon that will follow. Thank you, ladies.
Wow. Thank you so much, uh, Lauren and Haven and Leah, for the beautiful music. It was just fantastic. I want to also thank Karen and, and Robert for, for lighting our Advent candle today. Today I'd like to go right to our scripture as a follow-up to this song, Christmas Must Be Something More. And we find ourselves during this uh, Advent season, as we do traditionally, turning to it's kind of an unlikely character in John the Baptizer. And we want to read his story from Mark's gospel this morning, the first chapter beginning with the first verse. We'll read the first 13 verses. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me, and I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. His name was John, John the Baptizer. And he doesn't really fit into the Christmas story so neatly, does he? I've always wondered, you know, why John, in the midst of, of the angels and the shepherds and the kings and the manger and the stable and the baby we call Jesus, where does this wild guy in the wilderness really fit in? We, we hear from Isaiah the prophet. We spoke about Isaiah the prophet just last Sunday. We always read from Isaiah the prophet during Advent because it was Isaiah who more than any other prophet prophesied that this Messiah, this Christ is coming. But more than that, it was Isaiah who prophesied that 
John was coming. A voice crying out in the wilderness. A voice, a very important voice, preparing the way of the Lord. Now, who was John? This eccentric, religious, prophet-type guy who followed the example of Elijah, who was rough, who probably had... um, not only the dress that is described with the rough camel hair and the leather belt, but his hair was probably wild, at least it is in my eye. And, and, and he's preaching this message of repentance. And what's amazing when he's calling people to, 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 to go away from their sin is that people are coming to him to be baptized in the River Jordan. He was something more, as the girls sang about. Now, John's mother was Elizabeth, right? She was in her golden years with her her husband, the priest, and and, and they were expecting a baby. And we we read in in Luke's gospel, the Magnificat, where when Mary, cousin Mary, goes to cousin Elizabeth, the babe in Elizabeth's womb, it said, leaps. That's John. And, And Elizabeth Uh, really speaks this word so poignant to Mary about the baby that she's carrying, Jesus. And so Mary happened to be this very young girl. Some scholars say maybe as young as 13 years old. And at this tender age, she, a mere child, is expecting a child. So John was about the same age as Jesus. They grew up together. You know, I like to think these these cousins were were cousins that probably played together, playmates before this scene ever set forth in the Jordan River. Jesus and John playing together. And yet as they matured, as they grew older, their ways uh, were, were separated. John went into the wilderness where his ministry was one of of prophesying in the spirit of Elijah, where he absorbed himself in scriptures. He had a band of disciples around him who followed his way, which is a way to call people into accountability. Not necessarily a popular ministry, but one that the people of his day desperately needed to hear. And I dare say today, we're in the same place. John was no respecter of persons of rank. He had a tough message and uh, the the things that he had to confront, he felt like the religious leaders of his day needed to hear it first and foremost. He challenged those of power and those who were poor made their way to the Jordan. They heard the message. They were baptized there and the crowds continued, uh, both uh, the powerful and the poor, the crowds continued. And John was something more. John understood that God was about to do something in this world that the world had never seen that would shake the very foundations of the world from that time forth. He knew he was the one that Isaiah prophesied, the one crying out in the wilderness, the one who was not the light but the one who pointed to the light. And this morning what I want to do is talk in terms of who John was 
and what this Advent season is about and, and what John, through his example of life, is calling us to this Advent season and beyond. You know, I want to first say that, that, that we're drawn to John as the people of old were drawn to John because John lived a godly life in a, in a way that was very unusual and yet very attractive. In his passionate embrace of goodness, John was fearless in confronting corruption. When the religious leaders of Jerusalem came to hear what John had to say, probably looking down their nose at him for what does he possibly have to say that we aren't already saying in such a more formal and respectable way, John said to those religious leaders in recognizing the corruption that they were not calling into accountability, into account, he said, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now friends, when you're a preacher and you're trying to win friends and influence people, starting out by calling your congregation a brood of vipers is a bad way to start. But he had no interest in, in drawing people to himself for his own glory and for his own good, his godliness was calling them, to, them into account. Who is the most godly person you know? You, you know, I dare say for Jesus, he would probably say, it's my cousin, John. He's the most godly man I know. Who is it for you? Who has that something more godliness that you admire, that has influenced you? There was a pastor, an Anglican priest named John Fletcher, who was one of the early Methodists in the 18th century in England. And John Fletcher served a small church, but his he was known throughout the country as someone who was especially godly. The philosopher and historian and economist of the 18th century, David Hume, used to visit Paddington Parish Church where John Fletcher preached. He visited there on his vacation. And one of his uh, philosopher friends laughed and said, now, now David, you certainly don't believe all that that old preacher is saying, do you? You don't believe him, do you? And Hume said, perhaps not. Why do you go then? Why do you go listen to the old man? And Hume answered, because the old preacher, John Fletcher, believes what he says. And then under his breath he said, and I wish to God I did too. There was something about this John Fletcher that drew even the philosophers, the economists of the day to, to hear him. Like Voltaire, who also, this French writer and historian philosopher, also found himself listening to the old preacher. And, and when asked... that. Why he couldn't be an atheist and from one who knew that he wasn't a person of great belief. Voltaire said, I cannot be an atheist because I once met Reverend Fletcher. Wow. 
So John Fletcher, this Anglican vicar, close friend of John Wesley, Wesley had already tapped him out to be his um, successor. And, and yet, Fletcher died before Wesley. And so Wesley had the privilege, the honor of doing his funeral, officiating at his funeral. And it is said that Wesley said of Fletcher, Fletcher was a perfect man. Now we know in knowing John Wesley's understanding of perfect that he didn't mean that Fletcher was without flaw. He meant that Fletcher possessed that quality of godliness that is seen in love of God and love of neighbor that had become so like Jesus that for Wesley when he was asked who is the most godly perfect person you know it was John Fletcher you know I'm privileged to work on a staff here of godly people well they know how to have fun too believe me but they're godly and I could mention several of them I was going to mention Jimmy Jimmy this morning but he made a comment about me singing a little early uh, coming in a little early and so I X'd him off my list for this morning But all kidding aside, I admire the godliness that I see day in and day out in our staff. It is moving to me. I see them in my old cranky self and I just want to be more like some of them. You know, it's one thing to want to be like John Fletcher. It's another thing, just let me be like some of my staff. They're so godly. Now, I want to give you an example. This week, we lost access to the Internet. Have you ever been in an office where you didn't have Internet for a couple of days? Man, it ruins everything, especially attitudes. But they marched right on. So Friday on my day off, I get a call from one of our staff members apologetically. Suzanne said, I'm sorry to be calling you today, but I just want to tell you about your Cheryl. Cheryl's my administrative assistant, Cheryl um, Holcomb. She said, you know, today I had this bulletin. I had to get ready. We couldn't print anything in the office. It, it's a, it was for a funeral on Saturday, and Cheryl knew how busy I was with other things. She took that upon herself, and she went off campus. I don't know how she did it, but she got all of those bulletins ready, and she brought them back. Cheryl is such a great Christian person, and I called you just to tell you that as if I didn't know it. You know, I pray nearly daily, oh God, just let me be more like Cheryl. You know, I told that story in the early service this morning, and um, Brenda Maddox, who volunteers on Monday morning, she said, you know, you are so right. said, every Monday morning when I come in to volunteer, Cheryl prays for me out loud. But then I got to thinking, what kind of person calls the boss? on his day off just to tell him how good and godly somebody else is. And those of you who know Suzanne Fuquay, you know how godly she is. In fact, I thought just the day before she and I had gone out to visit one person in one of our retirement facilities together, one person we went to see. Before we left, we had visited four people. Suzanne was wagging me all over the hallway. We'd go in, we'd visit, and Suzanne say, okay, stand, pray. She became the boss. 
And at the end of that time there at the retirement facility, I was so thankful for the godliness of Suzanne. For 30 years, I don't know how long Suzanne's been. She's been here a long time loving the older adults in ministry here. She's not one of our, she's one of our administrative assistants. And yet the clergy knows how godly these two women are. And you know, part of what I think John the Baptist represents for us, part of what those people you can think of who represent Christ, so it gives us the example of what we can aspire to be. More godly, more loving. You know, after the early service, people were coming out saying, this person was that to me, this person was that to me, this person it's an important example to be godly. You know, John the Baptist also prepared the way for Christ by challenging sin. Really? You'd think that if you were trying to draw a crowd, especially in the wilderness and looking like he did, that you'd have a better topic than sin. No better topic for John the Baptist than to challenge People related to sin. You know, I think one of the towering marks of this age is the absence of guilt. I've been coming to that conclusion in the last several weeks, even months. There there seems to be this absence of guilt. And when we don't deal with guilt, when we don't see ourselves moving beyond guilt then it can damage our spirituality. Those of you who are in the recovery community know what shame and guilt can do to us, and we try to move beyond shame and guilt, right? But guilt is important. If we have no guilt for the wrong that we do, we seek no repentance to turn from it. And there seems to be today a a big excusing myself factor going on in this world. Related to what we should experience, good old-fashioned guilt. And knowing that we need a Savior who can move us beyond it. You know, John's word was simply repent. He he was speaking a word of repentance in in a society that was coming to the Jordan because they knew they were full of guilt, needed to be free of that guilt. And what John gave them was not only a, a way to profess, I'm sorry. That's one thing. It's important to say you're sorry. But a profession doesn't get you there. It's the other thing to confess your sin. Therefore, to live into a different way of life that moves you away from that which is the source of your guilt. And that's what John was preaching. Not merely saying, I'm sorry and and professing, but saying, I'm sorry and, and I want to change and do something about it. And the mark of my baptism is the symbol of God's helping me through that to a different place. You know, Tammy and I are NBC watchers and we have been for years. We've watched NBC before Matt Lauer lost his hair. And we were surprised and saddened 
this week when he lost his job? Or was it last week? But we certainly supported the decision in light of the sinful actions that he had been about. And yet, when, when I heard what he said to a nation honing in on his life, he had this sorry for the shame and guilt he was feeling and for the shame and guilt he had brought on his family. And I don't know all of the particulars, but what I prayed at that moment in time was that that profession was real. And that shame and guilt he was experiencing drove him to a place where repentance would be one day real. And whereas his career may be damaged forever, that his life may at some point in time be freed. And some of the politicians who are no doubt as guilty of actions like Lowers are worst, some of those in Hollywood that we've been reading about, some of the people that just seems like all of a sudden everybody is seeing this exposure of misbehavior. Continuing unrepentant, continuing to almost excuse uh, as okay a dehumanizing of another individual, treating her or him as if they are an object, is one in need of repentance. And especially those who profess Christian faith should be repentant. You know, it it's really sad when the most bipartisan thing that I have seen lately is the mutual engagement in sin without guilt. Now think about it. John the Baptist had the courage to challenge his society related to corruption. King Herod had seduced his brother's wife and had taken her on as his live-in. And although the people were outraged, the same people going into the wilderness were outraged with their king, their religious leaders were absolutely silent because they feared the king. They feared saying what was wrong to the king because the king had a reputation of being violent and brutal. Not John. He spoke straightforward, this wild preacher did. In the wilderness, when the religious people came, he called them a brood of vipers, and he, he knew and they knew why he called them that. And he was so outspoken with his courage, we know how John's uh, life ended, with his head on a silver platter to be taken to this very adulterous as a gift from the king. And yet his voice still speaks to us every Advent season. So much is wrong in our society. There seems to be an increase in violence. We've talked about that in recent days. There seems to be an increase in dishonesty, a lack of integrity in public life, sexual misconduct, and the list just continues on and on. In Advent, we who are Christian are called not only to godliness, 
but to challenge that which is sin to a place of repentance and change. It's a tall order. And finally, John the Baptist, he prepared the way by pointing to Christ. John in the desert was in the great tradition of the Hebrew prophets. He was aware that time was running out on his own life. He was aware that he was offending the wrong people. And in this burning message, he had no time for peripheral matters. So people were intrigued by the strange phenomenon of John and his message. And they came and they said, you are so powerful. Who are you? Are you possibly Elijah come back from the dead? And John said, no. Are you the Messiah that we're longing for? Are you the Christ that we, we have hoped for for these many, 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 many years? No. You know, we'll never know if it was even tempted to him to, to think that these crowds are coming because of me. These crowds are coming because of the word that I'm saying. I'm liking, I'm enjoying the fact that they're cheering. I'm enjoying the fact that they're wanting to submit themselves to baptism at my hand. I'm enjoying the fact that they think of me as a prophet. They even think of me as the Messiah, but not John. He said, don't look at me. I'm just the voice. And I'm calling you to see the light. It's my cousin, Jesus. J John had known Jesus all of his life. He'd known him from the playground. He'd known Jesus in his ministry. And when it came time for him to answer the question, who are you? He said, I am the voice pointing the way to the Messiah, pointing the way to Jesus. And it was John's crowning glory that he saw something more in his cousin, Jesus. He saw a Savior. He saw something more than the people of his day who were looking for the Lion of Judah, one who could lead the armies against the Romans. He saw the Lamb of God in Jesus. Behold not the Lion who will conquer and destroy, but behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's Jesus. There is no greater call for, for, a, for a preacher in the wilderness or here at Lover's Lane's pulpit or whatever pulpit is to point to Jesus. To be able to be the voice that points to Jesus. But during Advent, we're not talking we're not talking about a call for some prophet that we're still talking about hundreds of years later. We're not talking about the call that's on a preacher's life. We're talking about a call that is on your life and on my life the same. And John uplifts it. It's the godly life. And that godly life perhaps begins with us admitting our sin and shortcomings to a God who is the Lamb 
who takes away the sin of the world, even yours and even mine. Amen.